Hello and welcome to part two of our series on world building. You know why you should design your own campaign setting. Now let's show you where to start the process. The process is a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun. So step into the dojo because it's building your own world part two. Where to begin this week on the Dungeon Masters Dojo. Greetings and salutations, DMs, GMs, referees, judges, game operation directors, and all the other variety of storytellers. I am Lou, and these are the guys who put the old in old school. They made Mountain Dew in a hot pocket a meal, and you better get off their lawn. Our host, Bill and Scott. Bill, Scott, how's everything going this evening? As long as you're staying off the damn lawn, everything's going fine. It's been pretty dry. I don't have much of a lawn. <laughs> So, world building, where do we start? Have an idea. Yeah. I mean, know, know what you're building and stick with that theme. Visualize in your mind what your world's going to be. Now, your world might start off small. And then we mentioned this in the last episode. You start off small, work your way up. We're going to assume you have already done that. First thing I look at is the ecology. Desert, forest, plains, archipelago. What's it look like? And that's where I start. And then from there, I'll work into other points. But that that's where I start. I start with my map. And when we built our, our world, Mirren, the very first thing I did was make the maps. And that suggested everything else for me. I am not much of a map maker. I'll, I'll do it. But it's, it's not really my wheelhouse. I've so. seen your attempts. I fixed them. Thank you. I start, I start with a story. And I think that's why when we began building our world, it just, it worked out well because I was looking at the story of the world, how it came to be. And Bill was looking at the world, you know, what are the continents? What are, you know, where the mountain ranges, where, where are people's nations located? How, how the population moved. Yeah. You know, did, did this population moved from point A to point B or didn't move because of this mountain range or this, this body of water so the two of us bouncing back and forth, he goes, well, I want to do this because, that, well, that won't work because you're talking about a plains people and the part of the world we're talking about doesn't have plains. It's mountainous or it's swamp or it's islands. We need to move them or rethink it. Start bouncing ideas back and forth, and that's how we kind of flesh things out. But listen, for me, it starts with the lay of the land, and he starts with the story, and then he'll look at my maps, and I'll listen to his story and between the two of us, we was like, well, that would work really well over here. And he'd look at, well, you're right. And then I can do this. So that's the first one. And then we start looking at other things like the type of government. That's uh, that's usually a big one. Is it a, a monarchy, a democratic republic, theocracy? We have all those in our world. So that's the next thing is what's the the people doing again we're talking big scale now we're not we're yeah. not talking town city we're looking at continents and i think the the big question to ask you know at the onset of such an endeavor is what type of fantasy world is it yeah that's big you know yeah it's yep. it's it's huge and it defines everything that comes after that too mm -hmm. you know are, is it high magic is it low magic we we wanted to get away from a lot of the the stuff that's that's kind of already been done. You know, we wanted to go low magic. Well, well, we, we cracked our world, literally cracked our world with high magic and as part of the backstory. And that's why our world is low magic because it's regulated. 
So now when you say low magic, just so everybody understands, you're talking about just items um, for the most part. We're, we're talking about, in our particular instance, what low magic is, 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 is our world, Hymerian, is, is a very magical world, just like any of the other ones out there. It's just that magic is, magic training is guarded. It's, it's very regulated. Magic items are, are regulated. All of the old world magic items, artifacts and, and, and the whatnot, those have been or are still in the process of being sought out, seized, and brought back to the regulatory body of magic for the world and secured there so a major incident like the one that cracked the world can't happen again. Thank you for the explanation. Um, <laughs> you look informed. <laughs> well, I just wanted everybody else to understand because we keep saying yeah. low magic. Yeah, yeah. But you know, what is low magic for us compared to everybody else? Uh, yeah, and yeah, we, yeah. and we and we talked a lot, a lot, a lot about that. You know, it's like, okay, what's going to keep the world low magic? Well, this is what it is. Okay, how do they function? So people are going to naturally have a resentment towards that. And then now we're talking black markets for magic items. And well, that's where a lot of the government came in too, because it was, yeah. it, it was large entities that are policing that how much magic is out there. So that became two of those entities that work together, but are somewhat diametrically opposed. They're the ones that drive the controlling of the magic in our world. Doesn't mean your world has to be that way. That's what we decided in our world to do. And he was right. There was an awful lot of conversation about what level of magic we were going to allow in the world and how it was going to be regulated. And in that conversation, was that was the impetus of how these two organizations came to be and which became driving forces in the entire world and actually took up good chunks of the continent because several parts on the world physically, geography, were populated and controlled by these two entities. And that and that's where that, that kind of marriage between the story and the geography of the world happens because the geography tells a story just as well as the, the you know the written words of the story do. Uh, the geography changed very, very much as a result of what the world's history was. So the world was would be a very different place to someone who was displaced in time and moved forward several thousand years. Uh, a lot of what was what was once there no longer is, <laughs> or drastically moved. Yeah, or yeah, they're in a different different location. Another thing to think about is population density. The population has a tendency to gravitate towards water sources, but sometimes water sources aren't available. So where do you put them? Take a look at your maps. What does what does the map suggest? Or you decide, this is what I want. Now I'm going to build my map to match it. Go either way. But you need to, you need to figure out where your population densities are going to be. And then the other big thing that, that I have on my list is resources. Minerals, metals, forest, water, flora, and fauna. What are the resources of the world? And that's going to drive your population. That's also going to decide where your cities are, your towns are, your trade routes. You're thinking on a continental level here. So don't worry about what's happening with your town or your city. It's how does one city move their resources to another city and gather the resources from that city or the other the other province not necessarily the city, the province, or the state that's two, three away. And it, 
it seems like a lot. Mostly that's because it is. There's there's yeah. a lot to take into consideration if um, you want to build a believable fantasy world. And I know that entire phrase sounds a little bit strange. An oxymoron like jum- jumbo yep. shrimp. It, yeah, exactly. But you you got to pick a theme early on. Yes. And you got to stick to it. And then you have to give a little bit of thought. It's um, You got to give a lot of thought. Yeah. How long did we sit there and mull this over before we actually put something to pen and paper? Like three years. It, it was a while. It was three years or thereabouts where we talked and talked and re-talked point after point after point, then revisited because everything you decide on changes everything that preceded it. Yep. And, and that's not to suggest that you take years to do that. That just speaks to the obsessive nature of the two of us, which probably isn't healthy, but uh, you know, thought makes a huge difference in the believability of, of your fantasy world. Lou. Yes. Our world. It's amazing. I'll just leave it at that. We'll start with that right now. Well, I mean, you've seen maps. Yep. You, I mean, we're not even get, getting into the people and, and stuff like that. Just the general overall look of the world. Is it believable? Y- yes. You have all your, like you said, your grasslands, your plains, your cities, your your capitals everything it's all there and it's just it's it's incredible what you guys did what you put together now see i'm i'm a bit of a science and and uh, nerd and geek so i will look at the weather patterns based on the build of the continents and that will decide where the forested areas are where the plains are i spend way too much time on the discovery channel learning channel history channel i mean just agreed yeah, yeah. But, I mean, when I build a map, I take continental plate tectonics into – now, I'm not saying you need to go into that level, all right? Like I said, I have self-imposed OCD. I, but I, I stared at it, and I, every little thing has to and will influence everything around it, and that influences everything around that. And that's how I build my, my maps, my worlds. And then from there, I hand it over to Scott. And go, here you go, boy. Here's your playground. Have fun. The ultimate sandbox. And he does. Exactly. The ultimate sandbox. And that's what makes it uh, so enjoyable is there's that passing of the torch. And I add the story and the history to it. And then once we hand it over to you guys at the gaming table, it's it's like you breathe life into the world because that's what's going to happen. Oh, yeah, we, we players, create the monster, but they they provide the electricity. Yeah, and your players are, are, are going to do that and let, let them do that. Oh, yeah. Because you get a much better end product if you allow that to happen. Now, we already know we're thinking big. I mean, we're not, we started off small, but we've worked our way up. Um, we started with towns and cities and they've explored those and then we worked our way out to regions well, now we're talking states, provinces, continents, right? Well, now you have a continent. Let's build another. Does the neighboring continent affect the one you've just built? And if so, how? And then when you go from there, you go to another continent. Now we have three major continents and a massive archipelago, which was at one point a solid continent. Remember I mentioned we broke our world. On purpose. On purpose. But that that was the the epicenter and we shattered a continent. So we have this massive conglomeration of islands and archipelagos and, and things like that, that used to be a continent. And then we have three other major continents 
and each one influences the next one and then the next one. That's how you build your world is make sure everything works. And why? We have a story. What does this continent have to do with that one? This one here exports resources. This one over here exports help, work, people, labor. This one over here is natural resources. Our main continent where everything started is where a lot of the natural, you know, natural resources come from, minerals, gold, gems, lumber. Mostly comes from the big continent in the middle of the world. Every continent influences another, just like in the real world. There is no islands that are not influenced by something. And you want everything to influence everything around it because that's where you get your connections, where your characters are going to jump from one continent to another for a reason. And now they have not only a reason but a way, a means. There's trade routes set up. There's resources being moved from one to the other, and that gives them avenues to move from one point to another. And on a, on a story level, you know, when thinking of, of, of the history of your world, continents still, has, as far as like the history of people, they still have an influence on one another. When the, uh, the cataclysm happened, the remnants of the indigenous people of that continent that was torn apart, they began to migrate and they encountered other people, other people who were previously engaged in a pretty lengthy war with another civilization who ended up, they ended up winning in the end, but then there were other slaves they held that revolted seeing them weakened and civilization changed after that. And so the story of one continent influences the story of another continent much in the same way that the, um, you know, trade routes from one continent influence uh, another. And, you know, how do these stories intertwine and, and what happens when refugee peoples come in contact with other indigenous peoples and how have their ideologies changed after uh, destruction of an entire civilization? Do you get fragmentation of that remaining population? And all these things come to mind. You have people that were at one point subjugated and now became a powerful force and are no longer so they are they've come to the forefront as as a populace and like you said it's every continent influences and every people influences you can tell who built the map and who built the people um <laughs> we they said we, and that's next week's that's next week's we, we we they said we come from two different points but we speak these back and forth and he gives me the input on what i build i give him the input on what he builds and having someone to bounce it off of, which is a point we're going to talk about a little bit later on, uh, definitely helps a lot. And if you're done with that point, we'll move to the next one. I have a, just a few more. Like one Go of the it. things I like to do is I always start small, and that's precisely what we did. And I, I like to build in a kind of a spiral fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, we have this one point we started at. and our In our case, we started with a place called Darkhold, which really could have been anywhere. Yes, it could have been on 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 Faerun. It could have been in in, in Greyhawk. Uh, it actually started as a fortification I built for another game entirely. Not even this game system, and it wasn't even D anD D. It was for another system altogether. I transposed it to this and said this would be a good starting point, and that's where the whole thing from week one, or, or yeah, the very first time we went off on our our get together, we started from Darkhold, and the the whole world spun from there. 
Yeah, and and very much so a, a spiral pattern. It's and that's a really good way to start because even though you're thinking big, you're starting small. And you can always when you start you have you have very little detail. You have enough detail to kind of launch your your adventure. It's it's a focal point. Yeah. But it allows you to change gears too. Mm-hmm. If you uh, if you see the progress of a television series, it, it often starts in that same fashion. Yes, where there's very little detail put into the first, maybe even the first season. It's all about the character building. The first, yep, and yep. and then you start really fleshing out the world and the setting, mm-hmm. and and that is a really good lesson to learn in in your world building. You're absolutely right. How about uh, right about now, uh, we kind of step back for a second. I know I need a refreshment. I know Lou needs a refreshment. And I'm hoping you need a refreshment. We all need a refreshment. So let's take a break. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, it's Lou. You know, the good-looking one with the full head of lush hair? I'm taking a break from filling DM Scott's shampoo bottle with Nair. To tell you about our new website, thedungeonmastersdojo.com. There, you'll find a host of awesome things, including a picture of me. Every third Friday of the month, a new blog post related to gaming comes out. Interested in getting caught up on the podcast episodes? You'll find those on the website too, as well as other interesting information. Head on over to thedungeonmastersdojo.com and pay us a visit. Send us a message too. We'd love to hear from you. Now, if you excuse me, I have to take the batteries out of DM Bill's hearing aid. See you next time in the dojo. Okay, and we're back. We are. Glasses are full. Yeah, they are. <laughs> I should have had dinner. <laughs> okay, we've touched on this already, making a map. This is one of my favorite things to do. It went all the way back to graph, paper, and a pencil. Flashback. Back in the good old uh, days. Wow. Uh, there's the old map maker that came with the Core Rules uh, CD. Um, there's Incarnate. And what I happen to be using lately is Wonderdraft. I do a touch of research. Formations of landmasses, influences of moving water especially. And then I sprinkle a lot of real-world science into my fantasy world. And then it gives a certain level of validity to what I build for my maps. You, you don't have to. <laughs> if but it's fun, if and you, you should. If your continent is perfectly round, cool. Okay, if the next one's triangular, cool. If the other one has six points, cool. If that's what works for your world, build it. Like I said, I'm a bit of a nerd and a, a science geek. So I use plate tectonics and water movement. I go through all this stuff. And they like said, I, I build the, the, the world, and then I hand it off to Scott and say, here, put people in it. And that's really my, my favorite part of world building is, is populating the world. And we're going to talk about that in um, episode three of our, of our world building yes. series, which I'm pretty excited for. One thing that I will always suggest, and I know not everybody has this handy, but if you do, co-DM your world. Yes. Ha- have another DM assist in the creation. We, we are a little spoiled that way. We, um, we are. You, we're you we're and very I, fortunate. You and I stumbled at each other as gamers 30-odd years ago. Millions of years ago. It seems that way. And When we both had hair, and it was all one color. And, I still have mine. And oh. you're the reason we don't. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> um. But then, you know, we, we hit it off. Um, I think I was game mastering. Actually, we ran into each other at, at, at gaming stores that I was game mastering at on a regular basis. It was something soldier, either pony or pony toy. Soldier. 
Well, yeah. there was the Pony Soldier, and there was another one in the, just on the road to Tin Soldier. Yep. But the Pony Soldier is where I met Lou, and I met you, a couple other friends. Um, and I went in there, and I game mastered there for a while, and that's how we first got started. And it wasn't until later in the years that you and I started really kind of bouncing stuff off of one another. And then there was the the birth of our, our long getaway. And that became the impetus that started this whole thing with our building the world and, and you and I co-DMing a lot of stuff. And co-DMing is not just, okay, I build the maps, he builds the people, we bounce stuff off each other. We've actually sat at a table where he was at one end, I was at the other, and while he was telling the story, I was leaning over and having interactions with the individual people around the table still in the scenario. While he was doing the broad strokes, I was doing little micro stuff. And then it would come to combat, and I would take over the combat. And while I was doing combat, he was doing just the opposite. Well, while they're doing it, you see this, and you see that. And this is something that just kind of happened. And, and that's, that's we, we didn't really, practice it. It just no, no. It just happened. Uh, yeah, it was practiced pretty much at the table. Yeah. At that time, we were doing it. And it's a large table. We're fortunate in that we have no shortage of, of, of gamers. True. And I know not everybody's in, in that kind of position because sometimes it's hard to pull together just three or four other people to sit at a table. But we have 16. Um, We've had as many as 22. Yeah, and, and that's and that's a lot. So when we have them all sitting at one table, having having a GM at either end of the table really helps if – you know, you're in sync with your with your your co GM, and that's that's really what the key is. One of the other ways we deal with it when we go away, we can have anywhere from ten to twenty two people, as Bill mentioned. We run two tables. Bill has one in one room. We have I have one in another room, and we run two separate adventures that are part of the same campaign and storyline. Which sounds a little confusing, so I'll, I'll give you. Parallel story arc. Yeah, I'll give you an idea of what we did. One year when we started our, our brand new campaign with brand new characters for 5th edition, because previously we were 2.5, my group was inside of a city that slowly became overrun by these mutated creatures. And their job was to discover what was going on in the city, and they ended up getting trapped there when things got to like critical mass. So... Their goal pretty much was to get out and tell the powers that be what was going on and what they found. So they had to run this gauntlet through through a city, and they started in a church's bell tower. Meanwhile, Bill's group was the second group that they were sending into the city because they thought my group had already been killed because they hadn't heard from them because the city had been overrun. So they hired a whole new group of adventurers to go in to try to finish the job that this other group started. So we're running two separate tables, two separate adventures, but of the same story arc. And slightly offset timelines. Slightly offset timelines. Um, very slightly, but still offset. And there's, I always come back to being a DM is more of an art than a science because you can't really plot it out on a piece of paper, right? It's all oh, practice. Oh, Absolutely. So this sort of thing works for me and Bill because because we're in sync. We're constantly communicating. We talk at the end of the day. There's no egos being stepped on because we all we all know where our our strengths are. 
and our strengths offset one another's weaknesses. So we end up with a really, really good and refined product that our players are very happy to play through. But give it a try because it's really, really fun to do that with another GM. Even if it's not another GM that you're going to sit at the table with and is going to run the game with you. An experienced player or someone who is very creative, yep, bounce your ideas off that other person because it gives you a different perspective. And in doing so, that will set you off in a new direction of thought. And hopefully, like in Scott's in my case, he will throw something at me and I'll give him my perspective. And then he will reestablish where he was, his perspective, and then iterate that. And then I will say, well, then what about this? And it goes back and forth and it's a tit for tat at or during the course of an hour and a half, two hours sometimes, an entire series of encounters or entire plot line has completely changed from the beginning, but has been enriched considerably because now you have two perspectives that have gone back and forth and back and forth. So even if it's not another game master and another experienced player, or like I said, someone with a creative mind, even if he's not part of the game, it could be your cousin, someone you work with. Hey, this is what I'm doing. Right? They may not even understand the game, but if they get the gist of the story and can give you another perspective from where you're coming, and you keep bouncing it off of them. So it doesn't even have to be another game master. It could be someone else that has a like interest, but is coming from a different perspective. It's interesting you say that because one of the people I communicate with frequently about about things pertaining to our world is is Tom. And Tom is Tom is an exceptionally gifted game master, but he's a very knowledgeable player. Mm-hmm. And he provides me with a lot of really valuable feedback from a player's perspective. He's one of our rules lawyers too. Uh, yeah, he really knows. He know, he's he knows the system. Yeah, he's part of the reason why we built the world because he knew yeah. so much about the game. But he's one of those players that Bill mentioned that you can really gain a lot of perspective from. So even you know going back to a couple episodes ago or whatever where we talked about you know communicate with your players it's it's important mm-hmm. their feedback is valuable and uh, I will tap into Tom's knowledge semi frequently regarding stuff with with the world because he has a knack for for fine tuning and uh, pointing out you know uh, gaps you know <laughs> things we we may have missed. And you got to really check your ego at the door when you do stuff like that because you're really not infallible. And when your players are gracious enough to provide you with their feedback on those things, take it and appreciate that feedback. Especially if more than one player brings up a point. Yeah. Then obviously that is a, I won't say fault, but a weak point Mm -hmm. that you need to shore up. The person you're bouncing stuff off of is there to fortify your weaknesses. Sometimes your strengths can be overbearing. They're to rein in your strengths because your strengths are your strengths. So you're going to throw them out there 110% when you really only need 80. (laughs) You don't need your strength to be forefront all the time. And having someone to rein in that and then bolster up your weaknesses is going to make you a better storyteller and a better game master overall. Again, you're looking at different perspective through someone else's eyes. Yeah, and, and really they're doing that because not only do they have a love for the game, but they have an uh, an appreciation for what you've created 
and they care about it and they care mm-hmm. about it probably just as much as you do. And that's why they're offering their opinion on it. Well, because, they're part of it. They're yeah. part of it. We, we've mentioned a number of times your players are part of the narrative. A big part. And when they get invested in it enough where they're like, no, no, no. Well, uh, I had an idea and I noticed you were doing this, but what about that? And again, player input, we've mentioned a number of times and we will continue to mention it because it's such a huge part as a game master to listen to your players. Another area that I will oftenly dip into is life experiences that you have not encountered from the other person. Scott, you've gone places I have not. And vice you've, versa. You've done places. Now, I've, I've been to 41 different countries in the world. I've been to 38 of the 50 states. I travel a lot. And I see a lot of things that drive what I want to do. I spent two weeks and drove all the way around the entire Grand Canyon, then went to the bottom of it. Why? Because nature is something that I, that I enjoy. The Seeing the land being removed by water and wind. Uh, like I said, I'm, I am a, I'm, a, I'm a nerd. I'm a geek. Um, I will go looking for fossils. We all are. Uh, yeah, but it's an experience that I have, and I will share that with you. And then you have experiences, and you have skills and stuff that I do not have. And when you as a game master are reaching out to other people, have you ever, have you ever is a very powerful phrase. Yeah. Because especially when you have not, you're actively reaching out to this person saying, listen, I have not been done, experienced this particular thing. Have you? And if they have, great. If they haven't, eh, fudge it. You got two. You you have two different perspectives. Go at it that way. But life experiences from other people is huge. It, it is. And when when you ask that question, have you ever, or what do you think, or share this experience that I know you had with me? Um, what does that say about you as a, a DM? It, it says you're approachable. You care about your players' input. They have value at your table, and just that simple question goes a long way. Absolutely. And it'll pay back huge dividends later on. And that's just as good oftentimes as having a co-DM. Okay. So you have some great ideas. <clears throat> now you need to execute them. Yeah. And and there are, those ideas are only good if they can be executed, really. What I usually do is set a list of objectives and do my very best to stick to it. When we were building the world, I showed up with an easel and one of those really, really monster giant pads. And remember, we were jotting stuff yep. down on it is an extreme we didn't think so it seemed natural and a good idea for us to keep track of what we were doing but you need to execute those ideas and stick to what's really important and in an order now you're going to go out of order we 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 did a gazillion times but with a whiteboard or a big pad or something to refer to you always had something come back to to get you back on track and whether you're building your world or building an npc or or anything you need to get back to your starting point and make sure you you know click off everything you need to click off of. So, and I said for us, we did that, and we didn't deviate too much. I mean, you're always going to deviate. Yeah, and that just comes with your world being kind of, for lack of a better term, a living uh, object, right? It grows. Well, for us, deviation usually came around the third or fourth drink. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think one of the things that, that, that we did that worked really well for us and, and would probably work well for you guys out there too, 
Take the opportunity to use your campaign to fill in the details of your world. You don't have to do it all at once, but whatever whatever you are doing, wherever in the world you are, take that opportunity to kind of fill in some details. You know, what's the culture like there? What's the landscape like? Because every, and we touched upon this, every nation of, of, of the world has kind of a unique landscape. They have a unique architecture. They have a unique uh, manner of dress. Their weather's different. Uh, take those opportunities to, to fill in those little details, to kind of breathe life into that place on the map. Describe what they, what they harvest for flora and fauna. Describe what their houses look like. Yeah. Uh, you know, what jewelry do they wear? What do they eat? Yeah. These are little details that will often come up. We all know that the ports are usually a congregation point for a number of races, for different creeds and whatever, for different reasons. Yep. You can look at the crowd and go, oh, well, there's that person with this particular dress and that particular jewelry. And, well, they're obviously from this particular region. Yeah, you you know what was cool is we were doing we were doing something uh, very similar to that, and I don't know who it was. It could have been you or I who was describing probably both the uh, the some of the people there, and and someone someone goes, oh, that's a that's a person. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah that that person must be a prenogene or and when that happens, you know you've done a pretty good job of filling in the details, but it also tells you that your players are invested in the in the world that they've played in because they're paying attention. Yeah, and they've probably had a hand and and much of the stuff that's been created for that world. Well, I mean, as as you build these parts of the world you've envisioned, they're going to start to coalesce. They're going to start to to marry up. The, the edges will start to fit one another, and. The next piece that you build is just a little bit easier than the one you just built. And as you put them together, each piece completed is the groundwork for the next one. And it'll just keep going on and on and on. It's very daunting to start with. It's it daunting. It's a world. You're literally building a, a planet. In our case, we have four set continents. I have a fifth that hasn't even been unveiled yet. You're building a world, a globe. We've even gone so far as to describe what you see in the night sky on other planets and moons, and they're all named and where they came from. Good job by that on that, by the way. Uh, Thank you. So it starts off daunting. It will end up a little bit, I'm not saying a lot, a little bit easier because every piece suggests what should be next to it. Agreed? Absolutely. It's so much fun. Okay, so in conclusion... To build an entire world can be very daunting at first, but all you have to do is decide what you want or need in a playable environment. Build a small portion at a time, preferably get a friend to assist, then start. Keep at it. Be careful. It's addictive. That's part two of our series of world building. Where to begin? Part three will be coming soon, so keep your ears open. That's going to conclude this episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Please subscribe to the podcast for more great content. If you'd like to hear a particular topic, you can reach us out on Facebook at the Dungeon Masters Dojo. Or you can drop us an email at thedungeonmastersdojo at gmail.com. Thank you, and have a good day.